You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to The Revealing Retina, presented by the American Retina Foundation. I am your host, Dr. Roy Levitt, President of the American Retina Foundation, and joining me today is Dr. Subar Wong. He is Professor of Ophthalmology at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. He is Vice Chairman of the Department of Ophthalmology and the Director of Vitreoretinal Diseases and Surgery at University Hospital's Case Medical Center. He serves on the Executive Board of, the, of Directors and is the current Credentials Committee Chairperson of the American Society of Retina Specialists, the world's largest organization of retina specialists. Today we are discussing diabetic retinopathy. And I would like for you, Suber, to start out with an epidemiological uh, overview of what diabetes represents in this country today. Hi, Roy. Nice to speak with you today. Diabetes is a very, very prevalent disease and it's growing more prevalent in the United States every year. It's estimated that 135 million people have diabetes worldwide, and it's estimated by the year 2025 that 300 million people will be, have diabetes at that time. Currently, there are 16 million Americans that are affected from diabetes, so it's really all around us. There are 800,000 new cases per year, mostly of the type 2 non-juvenile onset type, and there are certain populations that are really at much higher risk, African Americans, Latinos, and Native Americans. Worldwide, it's really quite staggering. Six people in the world die each minute from diabetes and its complications. And those with diabetes have a 25 times greater chance of blindness without treatment than people without diabetes. In the United States, we mentioned that African Americans are particularly at risk. There's an estimated 2.8 million African Americans who have diabetes, representing 13% of the United States population. More than one out of 10 African Americans have diabetes, and one of four African American women over 50 has the disease. Overall, from an eye standpoint, we also know that this is a very, very serious problem. It's the number one cause of blindness in working-age Americans and parallels its number one status as the cause of kidney failure, renal dialysis, and transplantation, and the number one cause of non-traumatic amputation. So there's not a single part of our lives that aren't in some ways affected by diabetes, those who don't have it most assuredly know people who do. Super, why do you think there's this increase in incidence? That's a good question, Roy. There are some studies to show that our diet is at fault, and certainly in developing countries, the rise of diabetes seems to parallel that of socioeconomic status. So unfortunately, our country is doing very well, and uh, we are certainly living longer, but we are probably gaining too much weight, and that's certainly a cause in some populations. Other epidemiologic and genetic factors, certain subpopulations, have a predilection for developing this disease. We certainly are aware that it's increasing in frequency, not only for the type 2 disease that comes with later age, but also type 1 disease, which occurs in children and even infants. Suber, if a patient has diabetes and they are referred to your office as a retina specialist, what would they expect or what should they expect as part of their examination? Retina specialists are, of course, first and foremost ophthalmologists, and first and foremost, we are medical doctors. As part of every examination, establishing the chief complaint, what brings them to the office is very important. Some people are referred for a diabetes check. They may have no symptoms, but that is one of the key features of diabetes where you may indeed 
a patient may have retinopathy and changes to the retina, even rather advanced ones, without symptoms. So being checked even without symptoms can be very, very important. After taking a, a complete history, you'll be asked about what medicines you take, your medical history, your surgical history, your allergies, your social history, whether you have a family history of disease, diseases of the eye, as well as other diseases, and you will have a complete examination. A complete examination would consist of a careful testing of the vision, including refraction, and a check of the pupillary system, the eye movement system, your visual fields. When we use high-powered stereo biomicroscopic examination called a slit lamp to look at the front of the eye structures in great detail. After that, you could be expected to receive dilating drops, and the dilating drops allow us a much better view to the posterior pole and to the retina and the structures that exist there, including the optic nerve. Once the eyes are dilated, we use a variety of microscopes and ophthalmoscopes to look inside the eye. And one of the great advantages that we have as retina specialists is that our equipment allows us to view far out into the periphery. If we were to examine the United States and then through an undilated pupil, we might only see the city of Chicago or perhaps the state of Illinois. But if through a dilated pupil we're able to look coast to coast, north and south, to every nook and cranny of the eye to look for disease that may be present but asymptomatic. Once disease is found or suspected, what testing is done to evaluate this? And that's a good question. Very often with diabetes, there are many findings, such as intraretinal hemorrhages, exudate or cotton wool spots, that may, in fact, be observed if they're not vision-threatening. We are particularly attentive to changes, however, that affect or threaten vision. And those changes, the ones that we concentrate most on, are those of macular edema, fovea-threatening exudate, and the development of abnormal vessels called retinal neovascularization. Several tests can be performed as ancillary studies to further investigate whether there's presence of these conditions. One of them is called optical coherence tomography, and OCT is a test that allows us to determine whether there is thickening of the retina, and if, if so, how much there is. This can be a good surrogate for allowing us to see whether the treatments that we perform are, are working or perhaps not working. Another important study is called fluorescein angiography. Fluorescein angiography is a test that's been used for many years and involves injecting a small water-soluble dye in the peripheral arm or hand vein, and its circulation to the eye tells us a lot about the retinal function of the retinal vessels there. For those who are just tuning in, you're listening to The Revealing Retina on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Roy Levitt, and I'm speaking with Dr. Subra Wong, and we are discussing diabetic retinopathy and currently fluorescein angiography, a method of testing for diabetic retinal changes. Thanks, Roy. As we were saying, we injected the dye in the, in the peripheral arm or hand vein, and as it does so, then the time it takes to circulate to the eye gives us some in, indication of the overall circulation of the body. And then as the dye travels through the veins, we can see areas that are damaged, leaking, abnormal, or areas of abnormal new growth. Another important finding that we can see with this test is the presence of retinal ischemia. As pericytes and endothelial cells of the capillary system become damaged from diabetes, they can cease to carry blood and, of course, oxygen to the tissues. This is called capillary non-perfusion, and this can lead to retinal ischemia, a very end-stage 
and currently untreatable form of diabetic retinopathy. These are two very important tests that are, we commonly use as ancillary testing that are commonly performed by a retina specialist. Good. Now, once we've diagnosed the retinal changes, what treatments do we have for, let's say, proliferative diabetic retinopathy and ischemia? The treatment for proliferative diabetic retinopathy is actually a very exciting area because there's an expanding armamentarium of different techniques that we can use to treat this condition. When abnormal blood vessels grow and are diagnosed clinically or through ancillary testing, a number of things should be done. We know from the important work from the National Eye Institute and National Institutes of Health in the diabetic retinopathy study and the early treatment of diabetic retinopathy study, studies that were performed in the 70s and 80s, that laser treatment, peripheral laser photocoagulation placed around the periphery of the retina does decrease the likelihood of progressing to severe visual loss by 50% versus those untreated individuals. So laser treatment is something that's done in the office and it can be applied with great success. A second form of treatment would involve in the operating room inside the eye surgery. Frequently this procedure is called vitrectomy and this has also been refined over the last several decades where we can treat conditions that cannot be treated with a laser such as vitreous hemorrhage or very severe end-stage complications of proliferative retinopathy. When a vitrectomy is performed, this is usually done as an outpatient. It can be as brief as 20 minutes in length or several hours depending on the complexity of the case. It's typically done under local anesthetic as an outpatient where the patient may be even able to tell you whether or not they are having any discomfort or would like to be a little more asleep. During this procedure, uh, small micro-incisions are made through the uh, sclera, the white part of the eye, and the eye is entered using combined suction and cutting device called a vitrectomy instrument. Usually, another hand is used for illumination of the eye or for a secondary instrument in order to grasp neovascular membranes to peel them, cut them, excise them, or remove them in some other fashion. So vitrectomy surgery is also an extremely useful adjunct for very advanced disease. A third and very important and very exciting method of treating proliferative diabetic retinopathy and its subsequent neovascularization is the use of pharmacologic agents. The use of pharmacologic agents for neovascularization has been getting more and more widespread recognition as an effective treatment for neovascularization. The use of anti-vascular endothelial growth factor agents, that is antibodies to VEGF, can block the effect of circulating molecules and cause stabilization or regression of neovascularization. As a secondary and sometimes extremely important side effect, there also decreases the abnormal vascular permeability and may decrease macular edema, improving vision. All of this sounds very promising, Suber, but I do think that this needs to be a team approach and I would like for you to comment on how you are involved with other levels of medical care. Uh, I couldn't agree more. This is a problem that affects all practitioners, and I think that the team approach of treating this disease and its attendant complications is very important. Certainly, treating the level of hemoglobin A1C or reducing the level of hemoglobin A1C to modulate the severity of diabetes is a, a critical first step but modulating other risk factors such as hypertension, the level of cholesterol, and smoking also play an important role. 
I am involved with a number of other organizations. I am the program chair for the Diabetic Eye Disease section of the National Eye Health Education Program, NEHEP, which directly reports to the National Eye Institute and the National Institutes of Health. This consortium of important stakeholders in the field of medicine have as their function spreading the word about educating patients and educating practitioners in the treatment of diabetic eye disease. Dr. Suber Wong, thank you for speaking with us about diabetic retinopathy. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Levitt, and I'd like to thank you for listening to The Revealing Retina, presented by the American Retina Foundation. For more information, visit us online at AmericanRetina.org. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and new podcast features will allow you access to our entire program library. Again, thanks for listening. To ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.